So today we resume our study of the book of Genesis, and we were last in chapter 32 before Advent in December. We are in chapter 32, where we read about God coming down and wrestling with and wounding Jacob. And then Jacob is left with a limp. I was thinking this week about two limps that God has given me. One is a a limp that affects my body. The other is a limp that affects my soul. The first limp which affects my body is this. Sometimes, or most of the time, when I wake up in the early morning, and especially when it's cold outside, when I walk just normally, my left hip sort of grinds and hurts while I walk. This has come to uh, a surprise to my optimistic 36-year-old mind. I expected that at some point in my life, but can't say I expected to be given a limp when I was 36. It's proven not to be a fluke, which I initially thought it was, and uh, unfortunately is not a sports injury, unless you call walking to the mailbox sport, because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what I was doing. So I figured out a way to manage it. If it's early in the morning and it's cold, if I walk strangely and sort of swing my left leg out and around and in front of me and come down on it, it hurts much less. So if you to see me most early mornings, I'm walking strangely. But it's a way to deal with it, to manage with it. It is a gift, I think, from God. One of many graces that God has given me to remind me that this body is temporary. This body is actually quite weak. And it is daily moving closer to an inevitable reality. We also have a a spiritual limp, if you will, a way that my soul limps also affects me early in the morning. Uh, Those of you who know me well, or you've maybe heard me talk about this before, I often wake in the morning under an inexplicable sense of despair. Sometimes I cannot connect it to anything specific. I just wake up and I'm in a sort of fog. Uh, I feel like there's a darkness that is pressing on me. Uh, It's frustrating, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it inhibits me, it keeps me from doing the things that I'd like to do. Sometimes it lasts a few minutes, sometimes it lasts hours, sometimes it lasts days, and I squirm, try to get out from underneath it. I just have this pressing um, knowledge or understanding of sin and suffering within and without. It's like I'm just painfully and emotionally aware of uh, the suffering that's in the world. It could be something I read in the news. 
could be something that I know about that's going on in our church with one of you. Um, wherever I heard from it, it tends to I'd be reminded of it in the morning. And it's like all of my soul's nerves are exposed and it's it's painful. Uh, I'll, I'll think of my own sin and it'll be like film reel that just plays over and over and over again. I remember things that I thought and motives that I had and words that I said and, and behavior. I was like, I can't stop it. It's like a film reel that keeps playing over and over and over again. And the result is this sort of uh, depression. It's almost like a low flying or sometimes significant headache. That It's a limp. It's a limp. It's a, it's a wounding from God, I think. Sometimes I battle it well. Sometimes I don't battle it well. Uh, when I don't battle it well, it is when I distract myself, which unfortunately has proven to be somewhat effective. It doesn't actually deal with the inner issue, but it helps me to not think about it and not feel it. So I'll tend to get busy quickly. Right? I'll tend to start doing things and, and, and thinking about other things and, and setting myself to a, a task and the work of the day. And I'll do that to take my mind off of whatever else it is that I'm thinking about. And the further down that road I get, sometimes the I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm okay. Uh, but I would say I'm not dealing with it well when I'm doing that because it's still there. I'm just not facing it. Being sort of a a wimp, if you will. And other times I think I battle it well. I go to God's word. I pray. I say, Lord, I, I want this to be lifted from me. But I know that that's up to you and your timing. So I'm going to digest good truth now and think about good things and set my mind and heart and take these thoughts captive. And, you know, I have my scriptures that I remember and that I read. And uh, sometimes that works quickly the way I would like it to. And sometimes there's just a tarrying on God's part and it doesn't lift the way I would like it to lift. This is why I'm sharing that. I'm not sharing that uh, for sympathy. Okay, so please don't send me an email. Don't send me a card in the mail. Don't get me some gift certificate for a massage or something creepy like that. I'm not interested. I know those of you who love me that you love me. You're very sweet. You're very kind. But it will just feel contrived if you do it this week. So wait a week or something. But please don't do it this week. Next week, go ahead. Lots of gift cards, just not a massage. I'm talking about this because maybe some of you have similar struggles. And maybe some of you have uh, limps that God has given you. You have ways that God has wounded you and you have ways that God has impressed himself upon you and upon your soul that humbles you. And this is what happens to me. I'm humbled. I am painfully aware of my weaknesses. Now, to be sure, I'm not liking it, right? If there's another way, I, I would like that. If I could, could be sanctified by eating candy, I would vote yes. 
But God has his mysterious ways that he works in us like he worked in Jacob's life. And I see that he brings good about in this. And there are actually times where I don't have this despair or I have uh, not been in this despair for maybe days. And I find that I am much more self-confident, which feels great, but I end up in trouble. I grow proud. So I've seen that, Lord, if this is your way, if this is your way of breaking me and if this is your way of giving me a, a limp, if this is your way of humbling me and humiliating me, if this is a way for you to remind me of my weaknesses so that you can be my strength, you know, I welcome this. I embrace this. I want this. So today, in Genesis 33, we will see the good fruit of God's wounding of Jacob. He's wounded him. He's given him a limp. And it's going to bring about, it does bring about good fruit in Jacob's life, just like my limp and your limp brings about good fruit in your life. Let's pray. And then we'll read Genesis 33 together. (laughs) Our Father in heaven, we come before you as your grateful servants. And we are grateful because of the grace that you've poured out on us. And by this we mean that you have shown us favor that we don't deserve. And God, while we are painfully aware of our sin, it makes us also, when we hear your gospel, joyfully aware of your favor. That you love us. That you care for us. That you will always be with us. And this not because of some good in us that has warranted it, but because you are a good God and a loving God. And you cannot help but love the unworthy. You cannot help but love and care for the miserable. You cannot help to do in us what often feels painfully wrong because you love us and have good goals that we cannot see. So, Lord, this is why we're required to have faith, to trust you, to rely on you in a universe that does not make any sense to our carnal mind. But God, help us by your word to make biblical sense of you and of our salvation. We love you and we give you praise today in Jesus name. Amen. Please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 33. Let me take some time to set this upright. What we're going to read here. Here we have the much anticipated reunion of Jacob and Esau after 20 years of being alienated from one another. Jacob and Esau are 100-year-old twins, and they have been at enmity with each other for their entire life. That includes in the womb of their mother. You can go back to Genesis chapter 25 and be reminded of this. Their mother is crying out to God saying, what is wrong with me? What is going on inside me? Because she was aware of the strife that was already existing between Jacob and Esau. So they came forth at war. They came forth fighting with one another. And as they grew, 
the enmity grew. It didn't help. It didn't help that they grew up in a house of favoritism. They grew up in a house where mom had her pet and dad had his pet. They grew up in a house where you didn't just have the unconditional love of mom and dad. You didn't just have the unconditional favor of mom and dad. Maybe you had the favor of one of them, but the other one's favor you had to earn. Some of you grew up in a house like that and you know the kinds of problems that leads to. You still find yourselves trying to appease people and you still find yourself trying to earn the favor of people. And it's sort of automatic for you to assume that you will not just have that love and you will not have that favor and you will not have that affection from somebody. You're going to have to do something to warrant it. And so that didn't help in this home that it was a home of favoritism. And so Jacob was favored by his mom, but had to earn the favor of his dad. Esau was favored by his dad, had to earn the favor of his mom. And it got so bad that the last time they saw one another, Esau had vowed to murder Jacob. That's bad. That's a sibling rivalry. Some of you have sibling rivalries, but maybe your sibling has not vowed to murder you. I've heard my boys in fits of rage say, I'm going to kill you. They do not mean it. They don't mean it. Esau meant it. He meant it. He was so furious. He was so furious that Jacob had swindled his birthright and the blessing that he made a vow that he was going to murder Jacob. So what did Jacob do? Jacob ran. He ran and he ran for 500 miles. He ran 500 miles away to his mother's homeland. And he's been the Bible's focus for the last five chapters that we've been reading. And Esau just sort of faded into the background. And now in the text we're reading today, Genesis 33, Esau is going to come back into the foreground. So over these 20 years, though, Jacob has been blessed by God. He's been blessed tremendously by God. Spiritually, physically, materially. He's been tremendously blessed by God as well. He has a growing family. He settled down and has a growing family. God has given him a wife. He has a wonderful wife and another wife and another wife and another wife, four wives. And at this point, he's got 12 children. Soon he's going to have 13 children. Now, Jacob has been the focus and Esau has not been the focus because Jacob is, we're told, the child of the promise. He's the child of the promise. So you remember God came to his grandfather, Abraham, and God made promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he was going to bless him and do great things through him and through his family. He was going to give him many children and descendants. He was going to give him land. He was going to make him a nation. And one day he was going to send a very special child in his line who was going to be the rescuer who would rescue his people, God's people, that is, from their sin. And so God is working in this family. And as you read the Old Testament, you read about, you're reading about God working with this family, this family of Israel. Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. God is working with this family. And every husband and wife come together, they have children, and there's one child of the promise. And then we follow the line through that child of the promise. And then He has children, and then one of those is the child of the promise. And we keep tracing it down, and eventually we get all the way to Jesus Christ. Well, Jacob, not Esau, 
is the child of the promise, which is why he has been the focal point for the last five chapters. And so here is Jacob, chapter 32 and chapter 33. He is the next child of that promise, and he's on his way back to the promised land. And that got us to chapter 32, because he does something surprising. On his way back home, he takes a detour that we might not expect. Instead of continuing on his way west into the promised land, he takes a a detour that is not necessary geographically, but it's necessary spiritually. He heads south and he goes intentionally to meet his brother Esau. Why? I mean, this is the brother who wants to murder you. There's been struggle since birth. Why? Why go to meet Esau? Why not just make your way into the promised land? We probably have insight and we understand Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. It says, hey, if you're at the altar and you're giving your offering to God, you're there worshiping God. You remember that your brother has something against you. What are you supposed to do before you worship God? Go settle things with him. Okay, be reconciled to your brother and then come back and make the offering. So I think that's what Jacob is doing. He's after reconciliation. He's after clearing his conscience. And so he goes to meet with his offended brother. And he prepared wisely for it. Smart guy, shrewd guy, knows Esau may not be happy to see him. Remember, mom said, hey, go and I'll send word when Esau cools off. You know how Esau is. He's a hothead. He freaks out, starts breaking things, right? And then he wants to have ice cream with you in a couple days. So just let it blow over and I'll send for you. 20 years has she sent for him. She is not. So as far as he knows, Esau is still ticked. So he's going to be wise about how he approaches him. So the first thing he does, he does four things to prepare. We read in chapter 32, he sends messengers ahead. Okay, He's not just going to surprise him with balloons on his front door. Esau... Jacob is coming. So he sends messengers ahead. Then he divides his party into two groups of people in case Esau is angry and furious and goes after him. Not all of them will be killed. Then he prays. And then he sends three droves of people with three separate trucks full of gifts to try to appease Esau. What kind of a home did Jacob grow up in? A home of favoritism. What does he try to do with Esau upon this meeting him again? He tries to appease him. So he sends him all these gifts. Hey, Jacob's coming. Here's a big screen TV, by the way. Here's a four by four truck. Here's some hunting rifles. He knows Esau. He knows what he's into. Gives him all these gifts and all these messages. Say, hey, and Jacob is coming. So he prepares and then... One of the strangest, greatest stories in the Bible. After Jacob was done preparing to meet Esau, God came and prepared him to meet Esau. God makes the man. God prepares the man. God changes the man. So you remember the story. Jacob is is alone. He's fretting. It's the middle of the night. He sends his whole family across the river. He stays back. 
surely anxious about what's going to happen the next day. He's heard that Esau is heading his way with 400 men. Doesn't sound good. He's done everything that he can. He's alone in the middle of the night. He's praying. And Jesus came and wrestled him. They didn't just wrestle him. They wrestled all night and then ultimately the fight ended when Jesus dislocated and relocated his hip. At his shoulder, his hip. Which is why Jacob for the rest of his life has a limp. Now this to me when I first read it is strange preparation. That's strange preparation. Is this really the way to prepare Jacob for what he's going to face the next day? Why don't you come and encourage the guy? Why don't you come and talk to him about his potential? Don't forget who you are, Jacob. You're the child of the promise. Don't forget what you've done and what you've accomplished. You can handle this. Or at least, Jesus, come and sit with him. Put your arm around him. Cry. Maybe let squeeze a tear out for him. It's a rough night. It's a rough day tomorrow. But he gets jumped by Jesus. Jumped. And Jesus struggles with him and fights with him and wrestles with him. Jacob refuses to give up. Jesus sort of magically touches his hip and it pops out a socket. Pops it back in. Fight over. God was preparing Jacob to meet Esau. But we can't forget. Also preparing Jacob for what lied ahead to be the next patriarch, the next leader of this family, which would require great humility and great faith. And how did God prepare Jacob and grow him in humility and faith? He wrestled with him and he wounded him. That's very important. Will God wrestle with you? Will God wound you? If he loves you, he will. He will. This is what he does for Jacob. He put Jacob in a position. Remember the, the actual struggle. Jacob is struggling and pushing away and fighting all night. And then he finally puts Jacob in a position where Jacob knows that he cannot win on his own strength. This is what God did. Jacob is fighting all night. He's struggling all night. Not bad. I'm a century old. A hundred years old. I'm out of the lark. I'm fighting this guy all night long, doing pretty well, holding my ground until God resists back and teaches him that you cannot win this struggle on your own strength. So he is humbling Jacob. Jacob then, his only choice is to cling to God, which is what he did. And so it changes. He goes from pushing God away to holding God tight. That's how the struggle went. He's fighting and pushing him away and struggling with him all night long until his hip is broken. And then what does he do? He holds on to God tight and he refuses to let go. And says, I will not let you go, Jesus, until you, remember what he asked for? Till you bless me. So he came to a point 
where he had exhausted himself and his own resources and his own strength. He knew that he could not win this. He knew that he could not go on. He knew that he could not face Esau, let alone be the next patriarch of the family unless God was with him. And so he said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I need you. I need your blessing. I need your help. And he went, like many of you went, from pushing God away to holding God tight. And we do this even as Christians. We push him away until he reminds us of our weakness. I don't need you, God. I've got this. And he reminds us, doesn't he? And he brings us low. And then we cling to him again. That's right, Lord. I need you. I cannot do this on my own strength. One author said, sometimes a wound is a very special act of God's grace. How often we need to be wounded because it is so easy for us to trust our own skills and ability. Arthur Pink said, Jacob was not wrestling with this man to obtain a blessing. Instead, the man was wrestling with Jacob to gain some object from him. As to what this object is, the best of the commentators are agreed. It was to reduce Jacob to a sense of his nothingness. This was the wrestling match. To cause him to see what a poor, helpless, and worthless creature he was. It was to teach us through him the all-important lesson that in recognized weakness lies our strength. It's true here. It's true throughout the Bible. It's true in our life. God humbles those whom He loves. God humbles those whom He loves. God makes those whom He dearly loves aware of their weaknesses. God really loves you. He makes you aware of your weaknesses. Do you remember how we are described, how Christians are described in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3? We are bruised reeds. We are faintly burning wicks. This is the Christian life. We are bruised reeds. We are faintly burning wicks. Wicks. We are not broken reeds, but we're bruised reeds. And the fire has not gone out, but it is often burning very dimly. Like, Lord, if another wind comes up, if anybody breathes, I'm burning out. I'm done. This is who we are. And God makes us aware of these weaknesses. And so he does this with Jacob. He gives us him this injury, this wound. And, and he does it so that it lasts with him his whole life. I mean, he could have woke up in the next morning. Maybe he did wake up in the morning and think, was that a dream? Did this really happen? I'm sure that's what I would have thought. He's had dreams before. But then he was reminded that it wasn't a dream when he stood up, wasn't he? Oh. He starts looking for a cane. That wasn't a dream. 
struggled with God, wrestled with God. He has wounded me. And so I wonder, and I think that we should wonder, you should wonder, Christian, has God been gracious enough to give you your limp yet? Has he been gracious enough to give you your limp yet? Are you aware of your weaknesses and your needs before God? Are you daily reminded of your need for God's pardon, his provision, his protection? And now we're ready. In chapter 33, we see the fruit of God's labor. He's prepared Jacob. Jacob's a changed man. And so we read now and we watch and we listen to the disabled patriarch, the limping patriarch. And we'll look at it in three sections. Verses 1 through 3, we have Jacob's final preparations for meeting Esau. Verses 4 through 11, we have this surprising reunion. doesn't go the way we maybe thought it would between Jacob and Esau. And then verses 12 through 20, I believe, is a temptation for Jacob to disobey God, but he is resolved to trust and obey. So let's look at this first section, verses 1 through 3. Let me just read verses 1 and 2. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So he's obviously still suspicious that Esau's anger has not subsided, which is why he's being careful how he approaches him. But do you see the change in him manifested in verse 3? At least a couple things that we can see in verse 3. Is he a more humble man? Is he a man aware of his weaknesses? Is he a man who's acknowledging God, who's relying on God? First, we see this. He himself went on before them. A good man, right? A godly man. He goes out in front of his wives, in front of his children, in front of his servants, in front of everybody. And he goes out in front of all of them and deals personally, one-on-one, with Esau first. First one on the battlefield. Going to face his brother. That's good. It's godly. Shows humility. And then we read that he bowed himself to the ground seven times. He's not worshiping Esau. He's not worshiping him. What he is doing, we know from the culture and the context of this day, is that he is approaching Esau the way you would approach a tribal king of the day. And the way you would approach a tribal king to show homage and honor and respect, not worship, but respect and honor, was to bow yourself low, knees on the ground, forehead to the ground, seven times as a showing of respect. And this is what he was doing with his brother Esau. What is he doing? He's humbling himself. He's humiliating himself. Here he is bowing down To his brother Esau, who had treated him so wickedly. 
bowing down before Esau. His whole family's watching. His kids are watching. Remember that Jacob is the child of the promise. There has been prophetic word from God that made Jacob the ruler and Esau the servant. And that explicitly said that Esau was supposed to bow down to Jacob. And yet here is Jacob bowing down before Esau. Remember God told their mother in Genesis 25, 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older, that's Esau, shall serve the younger, that's Jacob. And then Isaac said the same thing, repeated it when he was sending Jacob away. Chapter 27, verse 29. Let people serve you, Jacob, and nations bow down to you, Jacob. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. I'm going to bow down, Jacob could have thought, to Esau. This immature, ungodly hothead who had schemed to steal the blessing that I rightfully purchased from him when I purchased his birthright, who breathed out murderous threats against me and I had to leave, been gone for 20 years, and I'm returning as the promised child, the seed of God's promise to rule God's people as the next patriarch in God's kingdom. And I'm going to bow down before Esau in front of my wife, in front of my kids, in front of all my servants who call me Lord. And yet what does he do? He bows down before Esau. Humility. He does not have to do this. He has not sinned against Esau. He holds the birthright. He is the object of the prophecy. But he's learning this truth. That we find all over our Bible. The way of exaltation is the way of humiliation. The way up is the way down. This is biblical logic. Right? You've heard this in the Bible. You want to be first? You have to be last. Doesn't make sense. You want to gain everything? You have to give up everything. Over and over, we see in our Bible the greater humbled before the lesser. We see the greater willingly humiliating himself before the lesser. So what Jacob does is Jesus-like. What Jacob does is Jesus-like. Jesus humbled himself before man. Jesus humbled himself in ways that should have been completely inappropriate for God to come down and humble himself in front of men. The disciples couldn't handle this. Remember, they pushed back on this all the time. They did not want Jesus to be a humble savior and a humble leader. They wanted him to open a can. They wanted him to go to battle. They wanted him to go to war. They wanted him to break out Weapons, they wanted him to lead his people physically against the tyranny of the Romans at the time. That's what they wanted. 
And Jesus is telling them over and over and over again, that is not, that is not my ministry right now. That is not my mission. In Matthew 16, 21, he announced this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And do you remember what Peter said to that? Over my dead body. Peter rebuked Jesus. Got in his face. I'm tired of all this. You're going to suffer and die. You are the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. I will fight for you to the death. I will never turn from you. I will never betray you over my dead body. And Jesus had a sort of strong response. Back to Peter. He called him a name. He said, get away from me, Satan. I love you, Jesus. I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to defend you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. What did he say? He said, you are not thinking biblically. You are not thinking spiritually. You're thinking carnally. You're thinking in worldly terms. Peter, the way up is the way down. And we see that what is he doing? He's preparing Peter like he prepared Jacob. He's letting Peter become humiliated. I will never deny you. And then he denies Christ three times in a matter of hours. But Jesus comes back to him. He goes for a walk with him on the beach. He reinstates him. There's Peter weeping. What has God done? He's prepared him. He's humbled him. He's teaching him the way up is the way down. Derek Thomas said this about Jacob. As Jacob falls prostrate before Esau, we see a picture of what God calls us to do. Renounce the idolatry that is our own exalted self-estimation and allow God to work through us as we follow in the footsteps of the Savior who, Philippians 2, 7 says, made himself nothing on our behalf. However painful this task may be, And the process of self-denial is never a painless one. It is what Jesus calls upon us to do. We are all born with a desire to make ourselves gods. Our minds are perpetual idol factories. And then he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How humiliating for Jacob to bow down on this field before his brother. How good for Jacob's soul to bow down on this field before his brother. It begs the question for me, what does it look like in my life to bow down before Esau? What are the ways that I need to be willing, eager to humble myself? It's easy to resist those things that will bring humiliation. 
I resist confessing sin. I resist full repentance. I resist these things because it exposes my sinfulness. Humbles me. Maybe even humiliates me. There may be very good opportunities that we need to grasp. Where the greater needs to humble themselves before the lesser. We need to hold on to our or assert our rights more slowly. And be willing, whether it's a husband or a wife or a child or an employer, to humble ourselves. It should also help us to embrace God's providential humiliation. In other words, God, by his providence, because he loves us, he humbles us. And another way of saying that is that God brings opportunities for us to be humiliated. It could be bad when man intends to humiliate us. It can be good and sweet when our God humiliates us. We try to hide something. Going to hide it. Going to hide it. Going to bury it. Going to lock it up. And what does he do if he loves you? It's humiliating, isn't it? And it's really good for your soul. He digs it up. Digs it up. Opens the lock. Brings it to the surface. What is he doing? He's humbling you. He's helping you face your weaknesses. He's helping you see how needy you are. Why? Poke fun? To leave you there? To watch you squirm? No. To come and meet your needs. To come and be your strength. To show himself in ways that are beyond our understanding just how much he really does love you and just how merciful he is. To not leave us in the delusion that we're good and great and he loves us because we're good and great. But to rescue us from that delusion, help us to see the reality of who we are as sinners and who we are as his children. Loved sinners. Died for sinners. Bought sinners. The way up is the way down. And then the surprising reunion. Verse 4. I mean, this has been a, Moses who's writing this. He is, the drama is thick leading up to this. Now, you've all read it before, so you know how this goes. And Pastor Curtis read it a few minutes ago. So, you know, we spoiled it, but... If you were reading this for the first time, you're wondering, well, what's going to happen? The anticipation is built. Messengers have been sent. The party's been divided. There's this wrestling match. He's finally prepared. Wow, look at him. He's out in front. Esau's coming. Who's with? Where are the balloons? Oh, no, there's no balloons. There's no party favorites. He doesn't have a birthday cake. He has 400 armed men behind him. This doesn't look good. What's going to happen? And you're surprised when you read verse 4. You're supposed to be. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. I mean, these, these brothers have never hugged. 
He, he didn't even know Esau could cry unless he was really hungry. He's never seen anything like this. And Esau comes up, he's blubbering, falls on him. In fact, Jesus borrows from this in Luke chapter 15 when he describes the reaction of the father and the prodigal son returning. It's almost the same words. Grabbed him, fell on his neck, his arms were around him. He's crying. He's so glad to see him. Right? And there's no gun jabbed in his sternum. He's just hugging him. Glad to see him. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they also bowed down. See the humility in Jacob, especially in verse 5. Esau says, who are, who are all these people? All these possessions, all these... What is all of this? And his response, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Now, this is a man who has worked very hard also for the things that he has. Worked harder maybe than anyone in the Bible. Worked very hard. One of the smartest men in the Bible. Shrewd. Wise. And yet he takes no credit for what he has. It's all God, he says. These are the children that God has graciously given me. As we read on in these next few verses and listen to Jacob talk with Esau, the word most on Jacob's tongue is grace or favor. He is gripped, we're seeing, by the unmerited favor of God. He's gripped by it. He's a changed man. He's gripped by the unmerited favor of God. Verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all the company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. See what happens? You grow up in the house of favoritism. Always trying to get the favor, the one who's upset with you. So that was the point of his gifts. They're trying to appease Esau. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. What a wild thing for Jacob to say in verse 10 when he says of Esau, I have seen your face. This is pagan Esau, Esau, who does not know God, who does not love God, who does not follow God. It almost sounds blasphemous when Jacob says, I've seen your face, Esau, which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Jacob looks at Esau and says, Esau, you are reminding me of God right now. How is Esau possibly 
reminding Jacob of God. What are his words? You have accepted me. Unmerited favor. Esau, you remind me of God right now because I have your unmerited favor. Being gracious, loving me, embracing me, accepting me. And he's reminded of God. And then see this. What is Jacob's response to the unmerited favor of Esau? And in that we see and are reminded of our response to the unmerited favor of God. What happens to his gifts? The gifts of appeasement become gifts of gratitude. Did you see that? So here he was giving these gifts, doing these things. Here were his works. And they were, he said, to gain your favor, Esau. It was to appease you. And now once he knows that he has the favor of Esau and it's not connected to the gifts, he doesn't say, well, forget the gifts. He just changes the motive behind giving the gifts. And now the gifts are not gifts of appeasement. They're gifts of gratitude. This is what happens to your works when you become a Christian. You don't stop serving God. You don't stop obeying God. But you're no longer obeying God and serving God and being good to get something. You're obeying God because you've received something. You're no longer doing these things to merit the favor of God. Before you were. And then when you heard the gospel, or now when you're hearing the gospel, you find that God's favor cannot be merited. You can prop that ladder up against heaven and you can have a million and one rungs of your design and you'll never get there. The rungs are greased. You can do your good works. You can be a good citizen. You can speak well. You can have many accomplishments. And if that's what you present to God. He said, these are filthy rags. My love is not bought, purchased. It's freely given in Christ. So this is the change that happens in the Christian We don't say, oh, I'm not going to do works anymore. We do them with different motives now. What does he say to Esau? No, keep these gifts. They become gifts that are overflowing from what? Gratitude. Gratitude. This is what you do for God. Do you obey him? Yes. Should you live a holy life? Yes. Should you take God's word seriously? Yes. Should you honor him every second of every day? Do you do that so that he will accept you? No. Don't 
that. Stop doing that. It's exhausting, isn't it? And it's futile. You'll never get there. You'll never be good enough. What is the good news? You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to work your way there. Look to the cross and see on the cross God's love for you and His unmerited favor. This is what Jacob sees. And so his gifts of appeasement become gifts of gratitude. And then finally, in verses 12 through 20, this is a difficult passage. It's a fascinating passage that we look at right here. There is some difficulty in interpreting what is actually taking place between Jacob and Esau and the conversation that they're going to have. In 12 through 16, we're going to read that Esau is trying to get Jacob to go with him. He's trying to take Jacob off track and to come south into Esau land instead of going west into the promised land. And I'm sure that was a very real temptation for Jacob. But Jacob knows that he's got to go where God has told him to go. And he's got to head west into the promised land. But he's got to deal with his brother in a way that's not offensive, that doesn't embarrass him, that doesn't criticize him. Because while there isn't, uh, while Esau has been very gracious and violence, thankfully, has not erupted in this reconciliation, we would all agree it's a fragile relationship. This is a fragile relationship. And so it's fascinating to see this interaction between Jacob and Esau Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Now, I think at this point, Jacob knows he dare not go with Esau. God has told him, where to go. And I think that Jacob is committed to go to Bethel, which is west. He knows that he dare not go south with Esau. Jacob knows he is the child of the promise. He is the heir and the head of the covenant. And he must not intermingle with Esau or anyone else for that matter who is going another way other than God. Jacob knows this, but he's tactful in how he handles Esau in this fragile relationship. In other words, when Esau says, hey, come with me down south to my land, Jacob does not say no. Have you forgotten? I'm the child of the promise. And God has called me to the promised land. And you are wicked and evil, sinful. You do not know God. You do not love God. Why would I go with you? I will never go with you. Those are true statements. But he's wise in how he says, is that how you deal with non-Christians? Is that how you talk to them? You have a conversation with them? You know, I need to stop this conversation. 
You see, I've, it's become evident to me that you're not a Christian, and I'm a Christian. And to continue to speak to you, I'm afraid that you may soil me spiritually. <laughs> Is that how you talk? A relationship starts, a friendship starts. You know, we cannot be unequally yoked, God tells me, and I see our relationship and friendship moving forward. And you need to know that while it's been nice, I recognize that you are a child of the devil. You are the spawn of Satan. Your father is the great enemy, and you speak lies just like your dad. But I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. You don't talk like that. And you don't act like that. You're kind, and you're gracious, and you're patient, and you're prayerful, and you're sharing the gospel. Okay, this is all Jacob is doing. He He doesn't criticize Esau. He doesn't embarrass Esau. He doesn't shun his invitation, but he's got to figure out a way. He's got to figure out a way without embarrassing Esau to not follow Esau south. And I think it's fascinating. So he says, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. And if they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So he says, just go and I'll catch up. But he does not mean that. So Esau said, let me have with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? So Esau presses a bit more. I'll I'll leave some people with you. Jacob says, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth. Esau goes south. Jacob goes west. Now I think, and I cannot be sure. I think that as Jacob and Esau had this conversation that they both knew what they were saying. And Esau could respect what Jacob was doing as not to embarrass him in front of his family and shun his invitation. And he says to Esau, be gracious to me just one more time. Just give me your favor this one more time. What's he saying? You know I can't go with you, Esau. You know we've got to part ways here. So what does he say? Just go on ahead. I'll catch up. I've literally had conversations like that with God's people before where maybe meet somebody or reconcile with somebody and there's been trouble in our past and we have some kind of a brief meeting. Maybe God just sort of sets it up and organizes it. You bump into him and it's good and it's gracious and it goes well and you talk for a few minutes and then we both say something like, we'll have to get our families together sometime. Now, in a sense, we really mean that as a kind and gracious and I'm glad that we had this conversation and I'm glad there's reconciliation. But in another sense, I think both of us know we're probably not going to get our families together. But it means I love you. I care for you. I'm glad God brought this reconciliation. But we both know that God's taken us our separate ways. So here Jacob deals with Esau. And then as soon as Esau's out of sight, he turns west. 
He built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock, and therefore the name of his place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. In closing, one question and one simple suggested resolution or application or commitment you may make. The first, a question in light of Genesis chapter 33 to ask ourselves and to ask yourself, are you broken? Are you broken? The good kind of broken. Are you, another way to say that is, are you aware of your brokenness? Because see, we all are broken. And we all are limping around. Some of us just may not know it. Are you aware of your weakness? Are you aware of your brokenness? Are you aware daily what God has pardoned you from, protected you from, what God has provided for you? It is better to enter the gates of heaven limping than to enter the gates of hell leaping. Much better. And while we are, Scripture says, like calves loosed from the stall, and we are, in a sense, leaping around full of joy, we are also limping. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Crushed but not destroyed. Limping and leaping. Are you? Are you aware of your weaknesses and how God's strength is made perfect in them? And then second, a simple suggested resolution of which Jacob is an example in this chapter to simply commit to trust and obey Jesus. There's an old song. You remember it, right? Great words. Really great words. Trust and obey. Why? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to trust and to obey. Help our trusting to be real trusting, the kind of trusting that leads to obeying. Make us people who hear your word and are pierced by your word and respond to your word. God, for those of us who, are, who think that we are burning brightly for you and aren't burning at all, show us that we are faintly burning wicks. And we are this in Christ Jesus, that you have brought flame and heat to our soul. But we will not be all that we will be until we see you face to face in heaven. And so for now, Lord, you know we are a part of a world with much pain and suffering within and without. The mixture of joy and misery. 
And God, whether we are walking through joy or walking through misery, just, Lord, help us to be wherever we are and to cling to you. Whether it feels like it's for another breath or we cling to you in great excitement and gratitude. Wherever we are, God, may we be a people who cling to you, who trust and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.